Luke chapter 7, beginning of verse 18. Let me just very briefly ask the Lord to help us before we come to the preaching of his word this morning. Father in heaven, we do ask again that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that you would do what you alone can do. You are the infinite God. You are the God who is almighty. You are the God who upholds us by the word of your power, who gives to all men life and breath and all things. It is in you that we live and move and have our being. And so, our God, we pray that you would do what you alone can do in our souls. We pray that you would take your word and that you would make it to work in us. We pray that you would open our eyes wide, the eyes of our hearts, that we might see the Lord Jesus, that you would increase our faith, that you would deepen our repentance, that you would dispel all doubt, and that you would lead us and guide us, and that you would draw us with cords of love, and that you would build us up in Christ. Our God, we pray that you would accomplish your purposes as your word is preached. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. And now, the beloved physician Luke tells us, the disciples of John reported all of these things to him. That is all the things that Jesus was doing, all the miracles. And John, remember back in chapter 3, John has been thrown into prison. Uh, by Herod because he told Herod that it wasn't lawful for him to sleep with his brother's wife, which is what Herod was doing. And so Herod put John in prison, even though he sort of respected John as a prophet, he didn't respect him more than he loved his sin. And so he put John in prison. And now we are told John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one to come? Or do we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing live in luxury in our king's courts. What then did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you said he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom 
is justified by all her children. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I know that we all probably have individuals in mind that we would say are some of the great Christians that we know. Uh, I don't think it's wrong to have categories of individuals and to say uh, this man or this woman is one of the greatest Christians that I know. For me, Johnny Erickson Tata would be far and away one of, if not the greatest Christian I can think of. Here's a woman who in her later teenage years uh, became a, a quadriplegic, and Johnny Erickson Tata would have much suffering throughout her life. She would also have stage three breast cancer. Her husband would care for her throughout most of her life, and yet here's a woman who has more joy than any Christian I know who has been more fruitful than almost all the Christians I know, who serves and is more diligent in her service than almost any Christian I know. It's absolutely astonishing what this woman does when she doesn't have anything that we have as far as physical capabilities are concerned. And yet it was interesting. I was listening to a talk by her about her testimony recently, and I heard a story I was not familiar with. She said that not long after she had been paralyzed, She had gone to live um, on the farm, family farm, with her sister and her family, and uh, she would read in the Bible the story about the man in John 5 at the pool of Bethesda, the paralytic that Jesus healed, and she would say, oh, Lord, why won't you heal me? I'm like that man. I'm here, Jesus. She said, don't pass me by. And, of course, Johnny Erickson taught it didn't get better. Jesus chose not to heal her. Um, And... She said that she was struggling with uh, the fact that she saw Jesus healing people in the Gospels, and he wasn't healing her. And she heard about a well-known female charlatan faith healer coming to the uh, Washington, D.C. area, and so she had her sister take her down to this uh, faith healing uh, crusade, and she sat in the paralytic section, in the wheelchair section, and during this crusade, this um, charlatan woman evangelist, apparently healed all these people over to this one side, apparently, and Johnny Erickson Tata said, but she didn't heal any of the hard cases. And and so she left feeling even more discouraged, and she thought, you know, why would I want to serve a Jesus that doesn't hear the cries of a paralytic like me? And... um, Johnny Erickson Tata went home, she says, and she laid down and she said, if he won't hear the cries of a paralytic like me and heal me, then I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. And Johnny Erickson Tata went on to say that she had so much uneasiness in her over the next couple months and weeks and bitterness um, happening that she, she went back to the scriptures again and she read in the Gospel of Mark, at the beginning of Mark, where Peter said to Jesus, look, there are all these paralytics and all of these sick people out here that need to be healed. And Jesus said, come on, we're going to another town because I've been sent for this reason to preach the good news of the kingdom. And Johnny Erickson Tata realized at that moment, Jesus did not come into the world to heal everyone of their physical affirmities and that she had a mistaken notion about Jesus and about what he had come into the world to do. And she realized at that moment that the gospel was the greater miracle and that what he had already done in her soul was a greater miracle. And she realized that Jesus 
was everything that he said he was and more than she realized he was. And she has gone on to have an incredibly fruitful ministry because Johnny Erickson Tata fought through her struggles and her doubts and her misunderstandings and her misplaced notions about Jesus. Now, I tell you that story because in the account in front of us, we have one of the greatest Christians that's ever lived. Here, Jesus is going to tell us in this account that among those born of women, none was greater than John the Baptist. He was the greatest prophet that ever lived because he was the only one who ever stood in the flesh and pointed to Jesus and said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All the other prophets had prophesied about Christ from a distance. All the Old Testament prophets had foretold the coming of God from a distance, but John prepared the way of Jesus. He was the forerunner of the Redeemer, and he, in the flesh, pointed to the Redeemer and said, he's come, the time has been fulfilled, the kingdom has come, this is the Lamb of God, this is the one who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus has told us in this account that up until that point, he was the greatest individual that ever lived. Now, that's important for us to understand because this great servant of God is in prison. And you immediately might start to ask the question, well, what does that mean? Why, why would God reward one of his greatest servants with prison? Well, that's often the way that God deals um, with his greatest saints. John Bunyan, remember, spent 12 years in the Bedford prison for preaching the gospel And God used that to give us one of the greatest books ever written, The Pilgrim's Progress. Um, Here, John the Baptist has finished his ministry. In a very real sense, God has taken him out of the way so that all the focus is on Christ. And John is now in prison for his faithfulness and his ministry. And while in prison, we're going to see that John struggles, even a great believer, even a great prophet is struggling with doubt about the identity of Jesus. Now we're going to see three things this morning. First, we're going to consider a doubting believer. And then secondly, we're going to consider a restoring redeemer. And finally, we're going to consider an obstinate, we're going to consider obstinate unbelievers. A doubting believer, a restoring redeemer, and obstinate unbelievers. Well, notice as Jesus has been going around, he's been doing miracles. We've noticed that he's healed the leper. He's healed the paralytic that came through the roof, whose friends let him down in their midst. He has healed Peter's, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, who was sick, deathly sick with that fever. He has also healed the centurion servant with a word from a distance. And then most recently, Jesus has raised the dead. He has raised the son of the widow of Nan, and he has restored that man back to his widowed mother. And now, notice that Luke tells us in verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. So uh, John is getting word constantly while he's in prison about everything that Jesus is doing. Now, I told you at the outset that this is a very difficult passage of scripture. Um, It's difficult on one hand because of the language that is used throughout this passage, Um, It is also difficult because not all theologians are agreed on exactly what is going on in this passage. In fact, uh, the great John Calvin, who was not inerrant, obviously, but was the greatest of theologians in church history, the great John Calvin, doesn't think that John actually doubted the identity of Jesus. He actually thinks that John is sending his disciples to Jesus 
because they are doubting and he is trying to help them get over their doubts. So that when he sends his disciples to Jesus, asking Jesus, are you the coming one or do we look for another? John is not doubting, Calvin says, but his disciples are doubting. Now, I think John Calvin is wrong. John is obviously doubting. His disciples bring him news about all that Jesus is doing. And notice in response to that news, verse 18 and 19, John, calling two of his disciples, sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And then notice what Jesus says after they come in verse 22, they come to Jesus. They say exactly what John tells them to say. They are messengers on his behalf. He answered them, go and tell John. So all that is transpiring is between John and Jesus. Now, that's important because what we learn from this passage is that even great believers, even someone like John the Baptist, someone who has been so faithful, someone who knows who Christ is, someone who has uh, made the identity of Christ known to others, someone who has given up his entire life to proclaim the Lord Jesus, this is John who remember, says, he must increase, I must decrease. All of this happens after he says all that. This is John who stood and pointed to Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is John the Baptist who is willing to give up his own choice disciples to follow after Jesus because he understood that everything was about the coming one, the one that the prophets had spoken about, the long-awaited Christ and Redeemer, and He had proclaimed boldly and without any sort of question whatsoever that Jesus was, in fact, that Christ. Now he's in prison and he's doubting. Um, There is a question here as to why John is doubting. Um, It could be because John's in prison. Johnny Erickson Tata struggled with the fact that God sovereignly Um, ordained that she would be paralyzed the way in which she was paralyzed. God is sovereign over that. Can I please say that this morning? If you don't believe that God is sovereign over everything, even our afflictions, then you do not know the God of Scripture. He is either in control of everything or nothing. God is either in control of everything or he is in control of nothing. The infinite God was sovereign over John the Baptist being in prison. And yet, as we go through hardships and we go through difficulties and we go through trials and we go through unenjoyable things, we often struggle, don't we? We struggle to match our circumstances with what we know about God from the scriptures. We struggle to match our circumstances with the promises of God. We struggle to match our circumstances with our own expectations, which are often misplaced. And it may be that John is in prison and John has heard Jesus preach. And one of the things, remember, that Jesus preached in Nazareth back in Luke chapter 4, the very first sermon that he preached, one of the things that Jesus said about himself was that he came to set the prisoners free. That was in Isaiah 61.1. The Messiah would come, he would set the prisoners free. Here's John's in prison and he's not free. It, It may be that John misunderstood that messianic word, and he didn't understand that that was speaking about Jesus setting spiritual captives free and redeeming people. That was figurative language. I I think, however, that there might be a a more satisfactory 
explanation. I think that John may be struggling because when we look at the Old Testament and we look at all that the Old Testament tells us about the Messiah who was to come, the Christ who was to come, and the entire Old Testament's about Christ. It's all telling us that the Christ is going to come and here's what he's going to do and here's going to be the fruit of it. And it tells us that in poetic language and it tells us it in historical narratives and under types and figures and shadows and prophecies and all these different literary genres that God chooses and all these different various ways that God reveals the things about Christ in the Old Testament. But one of the things that we take away is that when when the Christ would come, the Old Testament says he would come bringing salvation and he would come bringing judgment. That's a very simple way to understand the work of Christ. He comes bringing salvation and judgment. If you read the prophets, when the Redeemer comes, when God comes to his people, he will come both with grace and mercy and with vengeance. And remember, when John the Baptist began his ministry, remember his message about the Redeemer. He said, there is one coming after me who's greater than me, whose sandal strap I'm not even worthy to stoop down and loose. And I baptize with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's salvation. He will purify the hearts of his people. He will redeem his people. He will baptize with the Spirit. And then John said, but his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly cleanse out his threshing floor. He'll bring judgment. John understood that the work of the Redeemer was the work of salvation and judgment. Now, okay, you say, okay, great, got it. You're like, okay, you've told us this before. Why would John doubt now? Because Jesus isn't bringing judgment here. Jesus is not bringing judgment. All he's doing is healing people. All he's doing is miracles of mercy. All he's doing is miracles of grace. All he's doing is proclaiming good news. Remember, he's feasting and the people are mad. He's going to tell us that later in here. He's come to bring joy. He's come to bring redemption. He's come to proclaim good news. He's come to say that sins can be forgiven. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. He's come to bring the good news of the kingdom And his winnowing fan is not in his hand. And so John is hearing about these things. Verse 18, the disciples of John are telling him about all Jesus's gracious, kind, gospel words and works. And John is starting to wonder, maybe this isn't the Redeemer. Why isn't he bringing judgment on Herod? Why isn't he bringing judgment on Rome, having Israel under oppression? Why isn't he bringing the final judgment that he was supposed to bring. And the answer is very simply that John couldn't see that when the prophets spoke about the Redeemer in the same verse, they would talk about him coming and bringing salvation and judgment, but they were really talking about the first and the second coming of Jesus. It's like the mountain ranges. When you look at a picture of a mountain range and there are multiple ranges and they're separated by miles, they look like they're all together from a distance. That's the way the prophecies about Christ in the Old Testament function. And John didn't get it. And so he, he didn't understand what he was supposed to be understanding. He was looking at his circumstances, and John begins to doubt. Now, let me say this this morning, because I, I have never been a person that has struggled enormously with doubts. And about 10 or 15 years ago, it became sort of trendy to hear leaders, pastors in 
sort of the missional movement or the emergent church say things like, you know, our church is a safe place for doubters. Um, That was super common. Our church is a safe place for doubters, and we want our church to be a a safe place for doubters. What they really meant was we want our church to be uh, an evangelistic post for unbelieving skeptics. That's not what John is here. John's a believer. This is not unbelieving doubt. This is not hard-hearted, self-righteous, unwilling unbelief. This is a great believer struggling with real doubts. Eric Alexander puts this so well, and I had never really ever heard this put this way. I want you to listen carefully. He says, doubt is not the same thing. This doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. Unbelief is an act of the will that refuses to trust and obey Christ. Doubt is often asking questions or voicing uncertainty, and it may well be from the standpoint of faith. Doubt which is smothered or ignored can often be the precursor of many problems in Christian experience. Doubt which is confessed and faced and fought through can be a growing thing in someone's Christian experience. It's not the same thing as unbelief or skepticism. I thought that was very important because, you know, you may be the kind of person that, uh, perhaps because of a lack of knowledge of the scripture, perhaps because you're in difficult circumstances and you can't seem to square all those things together, the way John is struggling to square things, you've struggled with doubt. Is God really for me? Does God really love me? Am I really, do I really have a saving interest in Jesus? Why, why does everything seem to go wrong around me if God is for me? Travis mentioned in the uh, prayer after the confession of sin, you know, Romans 8, all things work together for good for those who love God are called according to his purpose, the hard things, the difficult things. That doesn't mean I can always square them. It doesn't mean that I can always see clearly and, and it doesn't always start my confidence. When, when Johnny Erickson Tata laid in that bed, unable to move after crying out to Jesus, I can't even imagine the struggle she felt. You can't either because you're not paralyzed. The struggle she felt when she would sit there in her bed and she said she would sing, abide with me. And she would sing, pass me not, O O gentle Savior. Um, And she fought through those doubts. That's the important thing. She fought through them. She went to the scriptures. She sought to deal with those doubts. Now, here's the very interesting thing about this passage. Here's a doubting believer. Here's a great believer who's struggling with doubts. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. And what does he do? When he has that doubts, he does the very thing that we should do when we have doubts. He goes to Jesus. Isn't that fascinating? He has doubts about Jesus, so he goes to Jesus. You're like, well, that's circular reasoning. Well, so is your unbelief if you're thinking that right now. So if you have doubts about the Redeemer and about Jesus being the Christ, if you have doubts about things that he says about himself and the scriptures reveal about him, you go to the scriptures and you go to Jesus and those doubts are expelled. John sends his disciples and he says, are you the coming one? He is essentially saying to Jesus, Lord, help me, strengthen me, build up my faith, dispel my doubts, assure me that you are who I know you are, essentially, and who I already believe you to be. Well, notice that Jesus does something very interesting. The disciples, they come, they bring this this word to Jesus and 
Jesus does something very, very interesting, beginning in verse 22. He is now going to show that he is the restoring redeemer to a doubting believer. Um, Jesus doesn't rebuke John initially. That might confuse you. He does throw a little rebuke in here. Um, He doesn't rebuke him initially. And he doesn't just say, well, go tell John everything you've already told him. Remember, the disciples have been bringing John word about everything Jesus is doing. Jesus could have said, go tell John everything that you have already heard that I've been doing. He could have done that. He doesn't do that. Notice what he does. He answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. And notice verse 21. Notice what he does first. In that hour, he healed many of diseases and plagues and evil spirits and on many blind He conferred sight. So Jesus, before he ever says anything, he goes out and he heals more people and he he manifests more of his messianic power and he does more mighty works and wonders that are signposts of who he is. And he does more of what he's already been doing. And then he tells the disciples of John, go to John and tell John what you are seeing. Now they're witnessing it. They're seeing him do this. Go tell John everything you're seeing everything you've heard. And then he points to Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. Now, Jesus is amazing. He doesn't just say, I'm the Christ. He doesn't just say, well, look at everything I've already done. He goes out and he does more of those sign miracles pointing to who he is. And then he tells those disciples to go bear witness of what they've seen now and heard. And then he says, and all of this is what the Old Testament said I would do. And if you went back to Isaiah 35 and you went to Isaiah 61.1, you would read that when the Redeemer comes, the blind will see, the lame will walk, the deaf will sing, the dead will be raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. All of those, all of those indicators that the Redeemer had come. These were the marks. These were the signs. These were the evidences of the Redeemer. This would, this would be the preeminent way his ministry was marked. How do I know that Jesus is who he says he is? Because I take him at his word. I see his signs in scripture. I, I, I see what the Old Testament prophesied. I see that that's exactly what he did. And I'm strengthened in that. I'm built up in that. That's, that's it. That's the thing. Um, he appeals to the scripture. Eric Alexander again says, as faith is strengthened and fed by scripture, doubt is weakened and cured by scripture. I want to say this this morning. If you are one of those intellectual types and scientific types that think, you know, I'm, I'm too, and it's, it's really class self-righteousness, I suppose, if we do this, but I'm, 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 one of the, I'm more scientific. That's, that's class um, snobbery, honestly. Um, I, I don't, you know, I don't know about all these primitive miraculous things. And um, a true believer goes to God's word when we struggle with doubts, when we are weak in faith, we go to the word And the word strengthens us in faith and it diminishes our doubts. And it's the only thing that does. It's the only thing that does. That's the thing. If you want to be a person 
that is strong in faith, you go to the scriptures. Um, If you want to have stronger confidence in who the Lord is, in your relationship with him, if you want to trust him through difficult times, if you want to get through hardships, if you want to make it through life in a way that's glorifying to him, you abide in the word. Um, Jesus points John, this great prophet, right back to Isaiah, and he says, go tell him the things you've seen and heard. Now, he does something very interesting, though. He, he noticed this. He says, and he essentially cites Isaiah 35 and 61 in verse 22 here. Verse 22, second half, he says, The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And then he adds something that's not in Isaiah. Instead of saying, the prisoners are set free, remember John's in prison, he leaves that off. It's very interesting, by the way. Jesus leaves, he sets the captive free off, and he says, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now, this is, this is the rebuke. There is, in Jesus restoring John, even a subtle rebuke. Um, John was offended that Jesus wasn't wiping out all of God's enemies at that moment. He, he, he was struggling because he wanted God's kingdom to fully come. He wanted justice to be fully meted out. And Jesus perceives in his doubting a measure of scandal, that he is, he, the, the word carries the idea of scandalizing, that it was a scandal to John that Jesus wasn't wiping out his enemies that he wasn't consummating the kingdom right then and there, that, that John felt that was scandalous, that Jesus was just doing works of mercy and grace and kindness, and, and he wasn't bringing that full manifestation of the kingdom of God that had been foretold. Um, Jesus uses that, and he uses his miracles, he uses the witness of the disciples of John, he uses the scripture, he uses even that subtle rebuke, And then he does something else to restore John, and something that's very, very important. He follows that very subtle rebuke by defending John's character and witness to himself. Now, this is beautiful. This passage is one of those great passages. It starts out with John doubting, and it ends with Jesus defending John in his ministry. Isn't that awesome? John is doubting. He's struggling in prison. And after going through that process of restoring him, Jesus finally comes, and notice what he says now when, in verse 24, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? Now, follow, follow me for a second on this. Jesus knows that people are overhearing everything. Everybody was listening to everything Jesus did, always. There were always people eavesdropping on Jesus and his disciples. They were trying to catch him in his words. Now some of John's disciples come to Jesus and they come saying, essentially, our master wants to know, are you the coming one? I'm struggling. And Jesus knows that the crowds around him are hearing this. And he knows that they may start doubting because of John's struggle. And so what does Jesus do? He turns to the crowds Notice this, he turns to the crowds and says concerning John, he essentially says, look, what did you go out there to see? Did you go out to see some like entertainment spectacle? Did you go out there to see some just famous celebrity? He's like, no, 
you went out and you saw a man who was dressed in camel's hair, who mostly ate locust and wild honey. He wasn't living in king's palaces. He wasn't dressed nicely. He was, he was, uh, he was sacrificing his life for the sake of the gospel ministry. You went out there, he said. Did you go out there to hear a prophet? Did you go out there to, to get your ears uh, itched by some religious leader who's going to tell you what you want to hear? Oh, you heard a prophet. He said, you heard more than a prophet. He said, you heard the greatest man who was ever born of a woman to this point. That's who John is. Jesus is now defending his servant. Now, I think that's beautiful because... Uh, this is really showing us that Jesus delights in his people who faithfully serve him. You know, we are going to have many struggles. If you are a Christian, you're going to have many struggles in your life of following Christ. There's going to be many hardships. There's going to be many trials. And when they come, they're not fun. And... Um, They weigh on us, and sometimes they can shake us. Oftentimes they shake us. Um, Opposition, suffering, disappointments, things not going the way that we think that they should. And yet, as we seek to faithfully follow Jesus, the thing that we can be assured of is that Jesus knows his own, and he knows the labors of his people. This is the Christ who said in John 12... The one who serves me, him I will honor. I don't know if you ever read that verse. The one who serves me, him I will honor. Jesus is doing that very thing for John. Even in the moment of John's weakness, this is John who Jesus will call the burning and shining lamp. When he tells the people he was a burning and shining lamp, he's essentially saying he poured out everything in him for your spiritual well-being for my sake and my glory. And now Jesus is honoring him. And he is pointing back to the validity and the importance of John's ministry. Now, that's going to lead us very briefly to the third point. And that is that all of this is happening against the background of obstinate unbelief. You know, this passage has these movements to it. It moves from John doubting to Jesus restoring to Jesus defending John's ministry and now, in a very real sense, to Jesus bringing an indictment to the people uh, because of their unbelief. And one of the the glorious things about the divine wisdom, God's wisdom in giving us um, all of this, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I thought just as a little sort of an aside, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but um, both Jesus's forerunner and his betrayer are both spoken about in the Old Testament. That's, that's pretty amazing. The guy that goes before him and the guy that sells him out are both spoken about in the Old Testament. So John the Baptist is spoken about in Malachi as my messenger who goes before the face of the Lord. He's spoken about in Isaiah He is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Uh, He is the messenger spoken of in the last chapter of the Old Testament. I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. That's John the Baptist. He's going to go before the Lord. He's going to prepare the way of the Redeemer. He's spoken about Jesus' betrayer. Judas is spoken about in the Psalms. And that's, that's 
to help us understand that this is God saying, I want you to be assured of who my son is. I want you to know who my son is. I want you to be firmly established in the fact that Jesus is the redeemer. And I want you to trust him. And I want to give you every, um, I want to give you every reason to trust him. And so we have this beautiful picture of John and Jesus together at the beginning of Jesus's ministry to help us believe in Jesus. But here's the interesting thing. You could not have found two different people than John and Jesus. John the Baptist was like the angry prophet in the wilderness prophesying the judgment to come. He wouldn't drink wine or beer with you. Jesus says that. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't feast. He wasn't fun. He wasn't the really funny, uh, famous pastor that could have gone and been a comedian. There are a lot of those guys out there. It's not John the Baptist. He was um, rigid, in some sense almost monastic. He deprived himself of the comforts that most people enjoy, and he called people to repent, and he warned them of the wrath to come. Now, by way of contrast, Jesus did warn people very often of the wrath to come and the judgment to come, and yet Jesus' ministry was marked by joy and delight and feasting, and at his own admission, he would drink wine or beer with you. He sat and ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners. So two different sides of the kingdom. Remember, salvation and judgment are the two aspects. Well, here are the two figures, John and Jesus. John is more focused on the judgment. Jesus is more focused during his earthly ministry on the redemption and the joy and the feasting of the kingdom. And Jesus now says, but it doesn't matter because you don't believe. No matter what we do, whether John is depriving himself and calling men to repent and mourn over their sin, or whether I am feasting with you, you're like children in the marketplace. Now, he uses a figure from their culture. Uh, The children in their culture like to play wedding, and they like to play funeral. Those were games that they played in the marketplace, and they were common games for the children to play. They would either... Uh, they would either act like they were in a funeral procession and they would be mourning and lamenting or they would be playing instruments joyfully like they were in a wedding. And Jesus says that all of those around John and Jesus, all the people of this generation, notice verse 31, to what then shall I like the pe- liken the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another, saying, we played the flute for you, you did not dance, we sang a dirge, you did not weep. Now, this is where it gets very tricky. Jesus says that generation was making obstinate excuses about why they didn't believe. So they were like children saying, come on, John, lighten up. We played the flute for you. You're not dancing. Or they said, Jesus, you know, you're not strict enough. Remember, he had those interactions already about the wineskins. And why don't you fast more? Why don't you mourn more? No matter what these two figures did, the people would find a way to obstinately walk away and reject their ministries and twist the reasons why they didn't want to follow. Now, here's what I want to say to us this morning, and Jesus will end this by saying, look, wisdom is justified by our children. 
everything that I do, everything that John did, it's all justified. And it's all going to be an evidence against people on Judgment Day. It's all there. It's all clear. Everything is justified. All the wisdom of God in both John's ministry and Jesus's ministry, it is all perfectly justified. It's perfectly laid out. It's perfectly planned. It's perfectly carried out. It's commensurate with what God wants it to be commensurate with to show forth the different sides of the kingdom. Here's the deal. The question we have to face this morning is when we come to a passage like this, when we look at the ministry of John, when we look at the ministry of Jesus, what is our response? Um, We are responding. All of us are always responding. That's one of the interesting things in the Gospels. You never find anybody who is neutral and not responding. Either... We are responding, and when we have moments of doubt, like John the Baptist, we are fighting through them, we are going to scripture, we are going back to Christ, and we are dealing with those doubts, or we are like all of that generation that rejected Jesus, rejected John's ministry, rejected the scripture, rejected the gospel, rejected the clear evidence of what God was doing, rejected the clear word of God, and making a thousand excuses why we will not follow him. You know, one of the things I've often been struck with in the Gospels is the way Jesus points out the trite reasons why people will not follow him fully and will perish because of it. Um, On one account... He says that some will say, hey, you know, I married a spouse. I've got to go take care of stuff. Some will say, hey, I bought a field. I got to go. I got to go deal with it. Um, In fact, when Jesus talks about the last day, as it were, and that it will be like the days of Noah, he he marks unbelief, um, obstinate unbelief by saying that people were eating and drinking not things wrong in themselves. In fact, Jesus said he ate and drank in this passage. But he said they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were giving in marriage, they were just going on, caring about their lives, not worried about a thing, saying, yeah, I wish that guy would lighten up. You know, I've heard about Jesus. I wish he, I wish he would be a little stricter here, and I don't know if I'm... That's what they were doing. But, you know, we can't come. We've we've got this to go do. We've got to go do this. Um, Jesus wants us to take that seriously. You know, there is a day of judgment coming, and none of us are going to have an excuse on that day. On that day, every mouth is going to be stopped. Nobody's going to be like children in the marketplace saying, well, we wished you had just sent us somebody to tell us about Christ that was more like this. You're not going to have that. Um... Jesus wants us to take seriously the witness that God gives us in the scripture to who he is. Now, I want to say this as we end. There's a reason why Jesus didn't say to John the Baptist, that he came to set the captives free at that moment when John was in prison. And I think that's because Jesus knew that he had to go to the cross And he had to hang on the cross under the wrath of God. And he had to pour out his life unto death under the judgment of God. 
And he had to take all the sin of his people on himself and break the power of sin and take the guilt of sin in order to set the captives free. And so he didn't say at this moment that he had come to set the captives free because he knew that in order to do so, he had to die on the cross to which he was heading. I think that helps us as we fight on in the faith, as we fight through doubts, as we fight through trying to reconcile our circumstances with God's providences, we look at the cross, and the cross makes everything make sense. The cross makes it all make sense. How can I go through this really difficult circumstance? And how does that square with what God says in his word? And then when you see what God does on the cross you realize that whatever I'm going through is nothing compared to that and that everything he did there is to fulfill every promise he has spoken to me and to one day bring about that rich consummation because he has redeemed me and he has come to set me free. I hope that you will fight through whatever doubts you might have. I hope that you will fight against having an unbelieving, an untrusting and a disobedient heart to Christ. I hope that you will look to the Lord Jesus and receive his witness. And when you are struggling, that you will go back to him as John did and that you will fight in those moments of doubt. That's the whole point of this. Johnny Erickson Tata fought through her doubts and her struggles and her fears. And that's that's an example to us. John the Baptist does that as an example to us. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we acknowledge how weak we are. We acknowledge that we often doubt. We acknowledge that we are not what we ought to be. We acknowledge, Lord, that we often have many wrong thoughts about you. And we confess this morning how we have not come to your word as often as we ought when we have allowed either Um, doubting thoughts or perhaps even unbelieving thoughts to fester in our minds and hearts. And so, our Father, we pray that you would do for us what you did for John the Baptist, that you would have mercy on us, that you would remember us, that you would restore us, Lord Jesus, that you would heal us by your word, that you would give us grace to come to you when we are doubting, and that you would build us up. We pray these things in your name. Amen.